So gender politics, race politics, they're distractions, right? As you said, because what matters at the end of the day is how much money you have, how much influence you have because of that money and what power position are you in where you influence others. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to Society in Question, where we take a nuanced exploration of the biological, social, and cultural forces that are shaping the human condition. Today, my guest is Lasana Harris, who is an associate professor of experimental psychology at University College London where he runs the Boundaries of Social Cognition Lab. Now, one of the things that Lasana focuses on specifically is dehumanization. And this includes seeing people as human or not, how we consider other people's minds, how we anthropomorphize objects, how we extend minds to things that don't have them. So it's a really fascinating conversation from an evolutionary perspective, all the way to a modern social cognition perspective. And it deals a lot with uh, modern issues. So it's a really wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed chatting with Lasana. Um, Unfortunately, his audio isn't the best, um, but I hope you'll bear with that because uh, he has a lot of really great things to say that I think are, are well worth a listen. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to Society in Question, Lasana Harris. Maybe to start, you could just kind of let everyone know what social cognition is and maybe why you say it's flexible. Sure. Social cognition is basically thinking about what somebody else is thinking. So considering somebody else's mind. And that involves a host of processes, um, inference processes, but also what we call interoceptive processes, so interpreting signals we get from our body. Um, And what's really cool about social cognition to me is that it's fundamental for everything we do as human beings. So our ability to interact with both other people as well as objects in the world are governed by social cognition. Um, And to me, it sits at the root of a lot of the, the things in society we'd like to change or see improve. So it's a nice lever, I think, to to pull to try to make things happen that could improve society. Um, Social cognition is a topic that's been studied for well over a century, and there's tons of theoretical perspectives. And most of the theory at some point tries to understand how it's special in human beings compared to other animals. So if you say, are human beings the only social animals? Obviously not. Um, If you say, are human beings the only animals capable of social cognition? The answer is still no. Mm -hmm. And so what separates the way we do it from the way other species do it? That is, why does human society and interactions look so very different from other social interactions in the animal kingdom? Um, And if these animals have, these non-human animals have social cognition abilities, What is it about our social cognition that leads us to do things like genocide, for instance, or terrorism, or any of the the horrible societal ills we'd like to get rid of? Um, And so that's what I try to understand. And so what we've said recently is that social cognition is flexible in the sense that theoretically, researchers have always believed that if I stick another human being in front of you, you spontaneously start figuring out what they're thinking. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because that other human being has thoughts in their head that could lead them to engage in behaviors that might harm you. And so figuring out what somebody's thinking is a good way of deciding friend or foe. Um, And so it makes sense that by default, we'd engage in this processing. What we've demonstrated over the last couple of decades of research is that that's not always the case. And many times we encounter other people and we don't engage social cognition. We don't try to figure out what they're thinking. And that's led us to say that we don't process them as full human beings. Mm -hmm. Because the argument is what allows you to process somebody as a full human being is by considering their minds and their mental states. That's what really separates how we consider humans versus how we consider other things. Um, And so we've been arguing that 
people can switch off their social cognition in the presence of others. And people can also switch on social cognition to things that aren't humans or even things that don't have minds. And so we can, that process is called anthropomorphism. So we can think about the minds of our pets. Um, pets do have minds. Um, they probably aren't minds like humans and lots of us consider our pets members of our family and attribute amazing abilities to them that perhaps they don't really have. But we think about lots of other things that aren't um, even agents with minds. So we anthropomorphize weather patterns, um, spiritual and religious figures, buildings, um, even random balls moving around on the screen, right? If you think about any cartoon, there are no people there. It's a bunch of line drawings that are animated and we still infer them as if they're people. And so because we can switch it on to things that aren't people and because we can switch it off in the presence of people, that's what allows us to say it's flexible. Yeah, and how does this relate to something like theory of the mind or mirror neurons? So in psychology, we're terrible with our terminology. And I wish we were like chemistry or physics where we would use Greek symbols and letters, but we use regular language. And so that results in many people calling the same thing different names. So theory of mind is social cognition. Um, but it comes from an intellectual tradition that says, the way I figure out what somebody is thinking is I hypothesis test. I generate a theory about their mind, hence theory of mind, and I test whether that's accurate or not based on their behavior. But there was another school of, so that's the theory, theory account. There's another school of thought that says, well, the way I figure out other people's minds is I simulate their minds in my own mind. And so if I see somebody in a situation, I imagine what I would experience in that situation. And that's how I know what they're thinking. And that's the simulation theory account. And that's where mirror neurons sit. So mirror neurons was this idea that there are brain cells that fire when we see behaviors, but also when we engage in those behaviors. And so potentially that was a mechanism that would allow us to explain how we figure out other people's minds. The problem with mirror neurons is that the evidence for them is very weak. So even though mm -hmm. the idea of mirror neurons is very appealing and there's tons of research on it, the effects are generally weak, particularly in humans, because, of course, mirror neurons were first discovered in macaque monkeys. So we've never really gotten direct recordings of mirror neurons in people. Um, that doesn't mean they don't exist, but it simply means that there's a lot more we need to understand about how that process works. The other interesting thing to consider is that we understand the network that supports social cognition in the brain. It's a very well understood network. It's present in thousands of brain imaging studies. Mirror neurons aren't part of that network. And so it suggests if the simulation account which requires mirror neurons is real, then we have multiple systems of social cognition, which is now getting into the weeds a little bit. But it really past the, the landscape and the complexity of that landscape yeah and you were saying before <clears throat> speaking of the monkeys that there we see the same kind of flexible cognition in a lot of other species maybe non-human uh, primates elephants i'm sure other species like that what what is it though that does separate us is it is it this humanization dehumanization aspect that really is what changes our uh our form of social cognition from the from other animals? Yeah, so what we see in other animals is social cognition. What we don't see is the flexibility. Mm. So that's what we think, at least according to my theory, that's what we think makes us uniquely human, right? So take a behavior that depends on flexible social cognition, like murder, for instance, right? Um, humans are a particularly murderous species, right? If you look across the animal kingdom, there are very few species that engage in that behavior. Uh, mice do it, um, wolves, chimpanzees, that's about it. And in all of those other cases, and by murder, I don't just mean killing somebody else in your species, because lots of animals do that for food or in conflict. I mean, um, killing somebody else without it being for food or without it being the result of a conflict. So for instance, chimpanzees, will patrol the area which they live. That's called border patrol. And if they encounter an unfamiliar chimpanzee, they'll attack and murder that chimpanzee. Um, if you think that murder requires you to 
reduce social cognition. So you, if I'm engaged in stabbing you to death, I have to switch off considering your mind. Because mm-hmm. if I thought about your mind during that act, it might trigger empathic processes, which may make me feel reticent to engage in that behavior. So the idea is I need to regulate it, shut it off. So if you think that's possible, then that's a handful of species potentially that's doing it. Now, the behavior we see in those species doesn't have to be driven by flexible social cognition. But if you use murder as one example of a flexible social cognition behavior, then it looks like it's something that's really specific to human beings. Certainly, the kind of killing we see in human societies and the scale and the level that we see is very unique to humans, right? You won't see genocide in other species. Um, And similarly, the kinds of pro-social behaviors you see in humans seem to be unique to us. You might see things that appear altruistic in other species. For instance, there are species of ants that will sacrifice themselves for the hive um, or the colony. But the large-scale level of sort of helping of strangers, for instance, is also uniquely human. So we have these extreme forms of behavior that we see in humans and we don't see in other species, which makes us think flexibility might be special. The other thing with the flexibility account when you compare to other animals, which I think is interesting, is it really differs because we're not talking about an ability of these animals. So we're not saying humans have more or less of this particular ability. What we're saying is the way we use it is special, right? The way we use this ability. So animals might have it, right? Your pet dog can read your mind, right? Dogs have remarkable social cognition skills because they've co-evolved with humans. But your dog isn't going to anthropomorphize, we don't think, right? Your dog isn't going to see an object in the world and consider it like a human being or even another dog, for instance, right? They're very clear about what's a dog and what's not a dog. And so we think that's really what makes us unique, this sort of ability we have to be flexible with how we use this skill, not the skill itself. Is there any uh, understanding or research that suggests why this might have evolved? Because as I think about the evolutionary environment, you know, in maybe small groups of primates where you you know, you have from from my understanding, like every primate, uh, or not every primate, but most most primates carry kind of a mental map of their status hierarchy in their mind, and they understand the relationship with everyone. And in that sense, there wouldn't seem to be a need to, get, I guess, dehumanize, unless maybe you're the the chimpanzee that's on patrol on the border. But where would this come from? Do you think? Is there any research or evidence? Yeah, no, there's only hand-waving, to be quite honest. Um, And the hand-waving is spectacular. So one idea is that it has to do with deception. So Mm -hmm. human beings are capable of misleading. So I might encounter a new person that I haven't met before. And if by default I consider their mind, I could be misled. So there's one hypothesis that says, a way of dealing with deception is just not to consider somebody's mind. So you don't get put in a situation where you can be taken advantage of. And I think that really works well if we try to explain some everyday forms of dehumanization. For instance, if you walk down a busy city street, you're not fully processing all those people that you pass, right? They are irrelevant to you. And that's a waste of cognitive resources. So there's arguments around the efficiency part of it. So as human groups got bigger beyond the 150 or whatever the number is that we lived in in our early ancestral history and we started encountering new human beings being flexible with whether we consider their minds or not might be a very successful strategy because it saves us from being deceived for instance so therefore a group is more likely to carry on and survive because we didn't let these new people in who potentially could be allies but also could potentially be threatening Another theory just focuses on the expansion of the groups itself. And it says, well, we have a limited processing capacity. So if we look in the brain at at the regions that support social cognition, they're primarily neocortical regions, the more recently evolved parts of the brain, the parts that are distinct in us versus other species. But what's interesting is that these are heavy lifters, but they have limited capacity. So if you think about your ability to do math, that's the neocortical process. There's only so many numbers you can hold in your head. 
So if we're really limited in that way with our social cognition resource, and our group sizes are getting bigger and bigger, that's too many people for us to keep track of. And so we can ignore most of them because they're irrelevant and we'll save our social cognition for those who matter. Um, a final uh, sort of thought about this, and this is the one that I find particularly interesting these days, is that um, we get more clues if we expand the way we consider flexibility. So I've talked about flexibility in terms of um, switching on or off the process. But there are other kinds of flexibility as well that we think might be unique to humans. For instance, we have the ability as people to have what we call multiple probable attributions for a behavior. So if I see you do something like throw your microphone across the room, right, I could come up with six, seven, eight, nine possible explanations for why that happened. And they're all engaged at the same time. And I can move between those explanations as we have our conversation, even without getting any more information about you. So the fact that I could sort of switch in that way gives me a bigger um, space that I could use to come up with reasons for behavior and therefore predict behavior. And so it might just have been an evolutionary advantage that developed in humans compared to other species that gave us this benefit of sort of having more explanations for behavior, for instance. Um, and so nobody really knows the answer to that question. There have been lots of neuroanatomists that have tried to understand the differences in the brain. It's not about brain size, right? You know, size has nothing to do with these abilities. People have gone after specific cell types, and, and there's a little bit of research to suggest that we have um, pyramidal cells that you don't tend to find in most other species, but if you have them like elephants. But they've really focused that work in terms of self-awareness, mm -hmm. um, which is also part of social cognition, we think. Um, but we don't really have an answer for why. Um, but we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of the ways you think this is playing out in the modern world, particularly maybe in negative ways? You mentioned before genocide. But I'm sure there's also more, um, you know, mundane, everyday kind of consequences that we deal with because of this dehumanization. So on the dehumanization side, absolutely. So we think this occurs for two or three primary reasons. The first is that if I want to do something I wouldn't typically do to other people, it's useful to be able to switch it off. And so this is actually, I'll give you a, a positive example here. So consider a medical professional that needs to stick you with a needle or slice you open. If that person thought about how much you hated needles or the suffering that your family is going through while you're in surgery because they're worried about what's going to happen to you, that cognitive processing, which takes up a lot of space, right, can get in the way of the task at hand, which is making sure that you're healthy, you're repaired, the surgery goes well. And so there's evidence now that medical professionals have the ability to reduce social cognition because it facilitates their behavior. And so that's the case of doing something you wouldn't typically do to human beings, right? Because when you're with other people, you don't slice them open. Um, so that's one reason for it. The second reason, and this is the genocide one, is it really it works really well as a post hoc rationalization. So the idea isn't that social cognition um, or dehumanization is causal in genocide. And if you look at the legal um, canons, particularly things like international human rights law, they give dehumanization a causal role. And so they grab propaganda from people who are charged with war, war crimes and they say, look, all of this dehumanizing language is responsible for the genocide. But then when you talk to people that were in death squads, they never mentioned dehumanization, right? Because that's perhaps not the mechanism. In that case, the mechanism might be something like threat, right? You think those guys are going to kill you someday, so we better get to them first. So dehumanization, we don't think is causal in that way. But once the violence has started, dehumanization can keep it going because of this post hoc justification. So if those people that we kill really didn't suffer because they weren't quite human, then we didn't really do something bad. Mm. And so it keeps the sort of moral guilt at bay and it allows the behavior to continue. So we think that's sort of the role it plays, this justificatory purpose. Um, 
so I, I like to say dehumanization doesn't cause you to to want to kill your neighbor, but when you're at the door with the machete, it might kick in. So you could do the deed, and then afterwards, it's going to kick in again to make sure you don't feel bad about it. The third reason is is what we call um, an emotion, a proactive emotion regulation strategy. So if I'm going into a situation where I expect it to be distressing, dehumanization is useful. So I use homeless people as a nice example of this. In a big city, there are thousands of homeless people. And as you walk through the street, you may encounter dozens of them depending on where you live. If you stopped and considered all of their minds and felt sorry for each of them, you just don't have the resources to do anything about it. And so instead of feeling guilty because you now feel helpless, you switch off processing their minds, you move through your day, life goes on. And so this proactive strategy, we think, might be the third the third reason why you do it. So we think it contributes to a lot of the societal ills, but it's not solely responsible. And to really get a handle on why people are engaged in the behaviors that they are engaged in, we have to consider multiple mechanisms, and, and I think this is just one of them. So it may not be the cause uh, of creating an in-group out-group dynamic but once the in-group out-group dynamic is established the the dehumanization kicks in to make sure that you feel okay about treating the out-group poorly exactly. exactly how do you how do you feel like this is playing out in the the socio-cultural sphere right now i mean with politics and or let's say specifically things like xenophobia like racism sexism transphobia homophobia is this at play here yeah, so I think you see the justificatory reasons for it playing out with a lot of these. So, for instance, um, there's tons of evidence showing that dehumanization really allows these behaviors to occur. So, again, if somebody gets shot by the police and you don't consider the suffering of that person, no one cares. So before we had cell phones and could capture things like George Floyd's murder, no one cared, right? Like these murders were occurring all of the time, right? It's not like George Floyd was the first, but now we got it on video. And because you could see his face and hear the screaming, it's triggering social cognition. You can't ignore it. And so I think the just the justificatory role is really important for the isms. So dehumanization, for instance, is also prevalent in sexual objectification of women, for instance, right? It's the same mechanism. So I don't consider the woman's mind, I just consider her body, she's a sexual object. And so it's justificatory, right? If somebody gets attacked or raped, well, they looked for it, right? Because they're a sexual object, they're not a, a real human being. So that's the way I think it operates primarily in a lot of these isms. Again, it's not the root cause of it. So getting me to not dehumanize you isn't going to get rid of this intergroup dynamic. It's not going to get rid of the gender biases which have been built up because of gender role allocations over centuries. But it's going to perhaps help with some of the behaviors. But because these things are multiply determined, it's not the one lever that might be most effective necessarily. So how do you how do you stereotypes and, and cultural language play into this. I mean, it feels like if there is something that separates us from the animals, in a sense, it's kind of the complex abstract language that we have and the syntax and the, uh, the ability to tell a story. And it feels like that story can kind of hijack the social cognition, the dehumanized thing to say, like, that's a them, this isn't us. Like, do these stereotypes and the kind of cultural narratives that we have influence who we humanize and dehumanize absolutely absolutely so cultural knowledge cultural narratives provide us social learning opportunities so i don't have to learn about other people by interacting with them i can hear stories about them right which is what media is i can hear secondhand gossip i can see clips of them on social media and so without having ever met someone who's a stranger, I can know lots about them, i.e. I can know this, the cultural knowledge about them and their perceived social group membership. And so I think personally, that's the thing that we have to solve. I think if we want to get rid of these isms, right, we have to change the cultural knowledge because these terms and the language and the narratives are really, 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 really impactful 
um, for us as human beings because we depend so heavily on language. Mm. So it isn't there. I don't think there's something itself about language, but the language is embedded within narratives, which gives us meaning and explain why we're in the position that we're in. And so I think you have to you have to pay attention to the representations in culture. And I think you need to restrict it, to be quite honest. So for years, I've been saying we need to provide a rating system for stereotypes in the way we do for nudity and violence, for instance, because mm. it's just as dangerous, right? I need to know that I'm seeing a gender stereotypical representation so I can make an informed decision. Do I watch this movie or not? Because whether I endorse that, rep- that representation or not, it's going to get in my head and it's going to influence my behavior. And so I see the cultural narratives as the, the key that's most important for changing all of these issues. Um, so. It seems like a very hard uh, system to do, though, right? Who, <laughs> who does the rating, right? That, that gets into a lot of um, subjectivity, I would think. Yeah, but it does for the other things, and we manage just fine, right? Like with the nudity and the violence, you put it to a panel. The panel comprises of parents, usually, as well as community members, a few politicians, probably, or policymakers, and they sit and they have a discussion and they come up with a number. And so we've done it for other things because of puritanical societies demanded it. We need to make those demands for these isms as well, right? So if we want to protect our children, because that's always the reason for restricting content. If we want to protect our children, that's necessary. And I think that point has been made because of social media. These days, people are clamoring for this to happen with social media, right? They're not saying that we want a panel to do it. They're putting their responsibility in the companies for them to change their algorithms so they don't promote that type of content or they remove it from their platforms. But I think we've all realized the power of the narrative. We've seen it at work, right, in our societies. And so we have to take this problem seriously. It's not something that we can say is just a regulatory issue to control the company. No, it's about making sure our society doesn't fall further behind <laughs> where it is. Yeah. <clears throat> can can this uh, backfire, though, in a sense? Because as I'm hearing you say this, I'm thinking about you know, my desire to, to see those isms disappear. But then a lot of people who I think would um, agree with that typically play in the realm of what is called identity politics. And I wonder, do we do ourselves a benefit by constantly fragmenting into more and more um, kind of like well-defined boxes and labeling those boxes in ways that do kind of draw more us versus them uh, lines because yeah. it feels like that could be counterproductive. So we have to understand who we are and we're human beings and human beings categorize and it's unavoidable. We don't just do it with other people. It's the only way we could navigate the world. So we know a chair is a chair even if it's a new chair somebody has just created because they could fit it into that category chair. And we do the same thing with people. So there's, in my opinion, you can't get away from, from stereotyping. That's just a fact of life. Well, we can control the stereotypes because stereotypes aren't fixed. So there are these studies going back to the 1940s, just after, um, I think it was, or the 1960s, that tracks the um, stereotypes in America. So every 20 or 30 years, researchers basically did a big survey where they asked people to tell us who the relevant groups are in American society and to rate them. And what you see is the stereotype shift, right? So right after world war ii japanese people were rated very negatively because of um pearl harbor and their involvement but by the 1980s when their business people bringing us nintendo and all of these technologies they had completely shifted the perception so stereotypes aren't fixed so they are inevitable but they are not fixed and so that provides i think a way to solve it so I don't think we need to get rid of stereotyping. That's how our brain functions. It's the only way this machine can navigate this complex environment. But the content of those stereotypes is what we can control. And that's where the cultural narratives come in. So there's nothing wrong with putting people in boxes. That's what we do as human beings. But what are those boxes? That's the the critical element. And do those boxes have to be 
ordered in some type of status hierarchy, right? And that's a old primate cell sort of kicking in at that point, right? Um, or can we have different boxes, but they just be different boxes, right? Um, and is that even possible? Um, another approach which I find appealing says, okay, we have to put things in boxes. Well, let's make a really big box and let's put all human beings in this box and let's treat each other as all belonging to that category. That's an appealing idea because it might actually work. The difficulty is we're going to need another box to compare that to. So I always tell people until the aliens come or some other species evolves, right, we're not going to do that as human beings. Um, but if there's an external threat, now humanity becomes one, right? And we've seen that in different cases. So if you think about it on a national level, right, after 9-11, there was great unity in America. So the external threat can push the group towards ignoring the subdivisions within it. When there is no external threat, however, we manufacture them for political, financial reasons and we push these gender politics and identity politics. I mean, these things exist because they are financially profitable mm -hmm. and they allow certain people to do certain things and, and we need to be aware of that. So, Yeah, I don't know if this is the appropriate way to look at it, but I recently did a podcast uh, and wrote an essay about how we need to kind of shift our us versus them to the class system rather than all these other uh things like Absolutely. gender you know you're 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 exactly right and that's how i feel but that's not a very popular opinion mm -hmm. i think because one there's there's market for gender politics there's markets for race politics right and people are making profits off of it um so that's the first issue but I do think it's a distraction. I think it distracts us from the real problem, which is class, as you said, right? Which is a, a broken, we live with broken systems. So the, the analogy I use is this. If you think about things like our current economic or political systems, they were created hundreds of years ago. Would you use a, a phone that was created 10 years ago? The answer is no. So if we're not using technology that's a few years old, why are we still relying on systems that are hundreds of years old? That doesn't mean getting rid of the systems, but it means we need to update them in ways where they're no longer creating the damage that is currently being created. So gender politics, race politics, they're distractions, right? As you said, because what matters at the end of the day is how much money you have, how much influence you have because of that money and what power position are you in where you influence others um but we get caught up in the gender politics and i think we get caught up in the gender and the race and the sexual identity because it makes us feel bad right like if i am a gay man and i have achieved a lot and people are still judging me negatively because of my sexual orientation like that's damning and damaging to me psychologically. That makes me feel terrible. Like, what did I do all of this work for if it didn't earn me the respect of my peers, if I'm still being judged in this way? And I think we play into that a lot. And so people get caught up in the identity politics. And I find it to be a real distraction. So that's one of the reasons I don't do race research, for instance, because race isn't a problem, in my opinion. And that's an unpopular opinion. The problem are the systems that we live in that facilitate these kinds of issues. So I agree. I mean, that's where I really struggle is it is not popular to say that race isn't the issue. But when I feel like you look at kind of the motivational forces behind it, it comes from a much different place. And one of the things that I'm curious about, especially with social cognition, is kind of the results of a very um, steep hierarchy, uh, economically speaking, because if you have a lot of oppression if you have a system that causes a lot of stress if you have a lot of hoops you have to jump through if you're malnourished because you're not eating great food because you don't have time to learn how to cook these things are all gonna stress your nervous system <laughs> and from my understanding like when that like social cognition takes a lot of expensive energy from the frontal cortex as far as i'm aware and that can deplete and has a certain amount of time where it needs to take time to restore. And if your brain is constantly stressed, if your uh, computing resources are at their limit, 
then all of your your ability to humanize and and do like pro-social behavior disappears and now because of this steep hierarchy you end up fighting more with your peers and whatnot because you don't actually have the like mental energy to engage in like healthier ways does that make sense <laughs> i think that's i think that's fairly accurate and i would add to that it serves another function let's say i'm a poor person living in the american south right the glory of the past south the antebellum south gives me a source of pride and makes me feel better than my current status in life so holding on to these old ideas really provides a benefit for me, right? It allows me to feel better than at least some people. And we know the other thing human beings can't help but do is social comparison, right? Like you said, with the primates, they keep that hierarchy structure in their head. So I might be dead poor, I mightn't have enough to eat, but I'm not those guys. I'm better than those black guys over there, right? And so that mindset is beneficial for the masses of people because the masses of humanity it's poor and suffering, right? We're not all doing well. And so if you can engender in the poor and suffering, now this is not scientific research, this is pure opinion, but if you can engender these identity politics in the poor and suffering, they're distracted. They're not focusing on the real reason why they're in poverty, right? They're trying to continue to get that positive feeling by being superior to someone. And so you have the intractable issues that we have. So it requires a complete mindset shift. I think it requires a better education system, basic education system, because social cognition is higher cognitive processing, like you said. It is going to benefit if you could engage in critical thinking development and really develop the capacity to get these cognitive processes going. But our, our education systems fail us, right? Our financial systems fail us. So people aren't really tapping into their full potential in that way. And so we're stuck in this identity politics ring where every few years there's a flare up of gender or sexual orientation or race and it grabs everybody's attention and it continues to distract us. Every few and, years around an election, maybe yeah. where demagogues are running. <laughs> Yeah, election cycles are two years, right, in the U.S. So, and even in places where they don't have a regular election cycle, like it's a distraction, right? It's something to boil the blood and get you upset and take your focus away from what really matters. So, how do we? Uh, I mean, so do you think about a, a way to improve social cognition? Then, is looking more at engineering like economic systems or social systems and culture for that matter, but. It sounds like you agree that maybe some kind of like, you know, financial support at the lower level or, or less exploitation or better taxation or something could really free up the mind to perform better. Yeah, it's a lot of systems. So these days in our lab, we're actually looking at how systems impact social cognition, right? Trying to get answers to these clues, for instance. Um, so, for instance, we have some preliminary data where we show that if you take like a welfare system, most welfare systems are what we call conditional. So people have to meet certain criteria to get benefits. Um, you can compare that to an unconditional system like universal basic income, which is getting a lot of attention these days. And the, the people who support universal basic income support it and say that well, it gets us away from all of the negative stereotypes associated with welfare. So if everybody gets a check, then the ones who are getting it under a conditional system aren't stigmatized, right? They're not viewed as just lazy, depending on the system. And we've done some experiments that has corroborated that, right? So literally just the complexity of the system causes you to now stigmatize the people who benefit from that system. That's a systemic influence on social cognition, right? And that's the kind of stuff that we're doing these days. Because as far as I'm concerned, we have to change the systems, right? We're not going to be able to train the bias out of people. Right? We have to change the situation so they don't have an opportunity to be biased. Um, or to have the biases that exist because of these cultural narratives impact their behavior where it now negatively affects other people. 
So it's a very revolutionary way of thinking because it's asking for a complete revamp of the systems that have been in place for hundreds of years that have been enshrined in constitutions and legal code and canon, right? We really have to have a rethink. And I think we're facing extinction now with the planetary disaster for the same reasons, right? The same systems are being problematic. They're not allowing us to solve this problem of the commons that we're facing. And so if we don't solve it, we're going to not be here anymore. So something's going to give, I think. One yeah. way Makes me think of um, Sapolsky, Robert Sapolsky's work out of Stanford, <clears throat> where he talks about the group that he studied, uh, the troop, the the baboons, I believe, in um, Africa, where the alpha males all died off, and then the group shifted to uh, altruism as a form of status. And he was basically saying testosterone shifted from being from causing aggression to causing like kindness and that the result the reason for that was the system changed and it makes me think that if the social cognition responds to its environment you have to change the environment so that it will shift to those better incentives absolutely absolutely i mean so the the apes provide a lot of insight so our closest genetic cousins are chimpanzees and bonobos these two species which share 99 point something percent of our DNA. So very little difference between us and them. Chimpanzees and bonobos are like night and day. Chimpanzees, I think, capture a lot of what's bad in humanity. They're the murderers we talked about. Bonobos are the opposite. They capture what's positive in humanity. And when evolutionary anthropologists try to explain the difference, they talk about the environments these species evolved in. Chimpanzees evolved north of the Congo River, where they faced much more competition from other species like baboons and orangutans. So food was more scarce. It was a tougher world. They ended up being nastier creatures. Bonobos evolved south of the Congo River. Resources were much more plentiful. And so you ended up with bonobos who are a female-dominated society, right, which is highly unusual. This is chimpanzees, which are male-dominated societies. You see much more prosocial behaviors in bonobos. Bonobos love strangers. They run up to them and have sex with them. They're sort of hypersexual creatures. Chimpanzees will attack and kill them, right? And so you get to see these vast differences in species that are extremely closely related. And I think that, that makes the environment point, right? The context in which we live is responsible for the way we think. And that's what's the sort of problem. So we have to, we can't just change the way we think without changing the circumstances. Yeah. <clears throat> Speaking of environment, how do you feel about the impact of things like social media? Because when I think about somebody's profile or something, it feels like I'm engaged. Like my, my goal is literally just or the system itself is literally just built to dehumanize people, to standardize people into a bunch of the exact same kind of text, the same picture. You don't see their face. You don't hear their voice. You don't see their eyes. It feels like it's a very dehumanizing thing. And it, and as we know, brains are plastic. So like, are we training ourselves to dehumanize people more regularly with social media? Yeah, social. the evolution of social media, I think, really represents who we are as a species, to be quite honest. So it does a number of things that we're addicted to. It allows us to get constant rewards in the form of likes. Right? So we know that when you get social approval, it's the same as getting juice if you're thirsty or money, right? Like it triggers the same mechanisms. So it's a constant source of reward. So we're always going to be on it. Second, it allows us to impression manage in a way that we can't in the real world. So I could pick what I look like and put it on social media. Now, I can spend a lot of time in the mirror and do that as well, but I can't furnish the degree of information that I can in social media over time that I, that's not possible to do in person. So because of that, it makes it very attractive to us, but now it becomes very dangerous partly because of the algorithms that are running, which are built to make more money, to figure out what's getting our attention, emotional things are going to grab our attention, negative emotions in particular. That's how we're built, right? We pay attention to negative things. They might be threatening. Um, anything that gets us angry, anger is an approach emotion. We're going to engage more, spend more time on the platform. And so the algorithm is going to figure that out, and it's going to push those images towards us. It's also going to, as you say, 
dehumanize people because we can interact online in a way that we've never interacted for evolution. So you're, what is it, nine hours away and we're having a conversation where I can see your face and all of that. That's remarkable and that's the benefit, but we're losing a lot in this interaction. So I'm not reading all of your nonverbal cues. I'm not getting any chemical information from you. So usually I can detect through my olfactory system, your hormonal levels. And that's not something I'm consciously aware of, but it influences the interaction. I smell so great, by the way. No. <laughs> I'm sure that you do. So, so we have we have a very different way of interacting online that isn't the way our brains evolve. And so that's going to lead to some problems, right? And we're seeing these problems today. So again, these things are multiply determined, right? And so part of it is the companies, part of it is the technology. But we created the technology because it meets a need that we have as human beings. We're super social. We're the most social creature, right? We always want to interact with other people. We want to look at other people. They're a big source of our reward. And so social media facilitates that. It's kind of like an addictive drug, right? It works exactly like an addictive drug. So, Do you think there's a way to reconcile the negativity bias and the outrage that we're attracted to online with the fact that hashtags and movements like black lives matter and yes all women and and so much of social media is where we do create the culture that you said is so important to to cognition like are are those things really quite at odds with one another i think that's the big conversation we are having now in society um i don't know if we're doing it intentionally but that's what we have to to figure out um, because the evidence, it's kind of like smoking and cancer. The evidence is really mounting that these platforms are bad for society and bad for our, our social health, if you will. And so the question is, what do we do about it? Do we go the restrictive way and try to remove content that impinges on freedom of expression? And you could imagine that going extremely bad. In another way, there are companies that that monitor their social media and restrict access to their citizens in that way. Um, but the answer isn't the complete opposite of that. So I think there has to be some happy medium where there's some regulation and oversight, not complete regulation and oversight, but some of it. That's a really messy thing to figure out. Um, and I don't know if I'm the person who can do it, right? I'm just a psychologist. But it feels like that's the conversation we need to be having because it's impacting our children, right? It's impacting how they view themselves. There's, it's impacting whether they're engaging in suicide, whether they have body image issues. It's propagating hate and, and division within societies. But it's allowing me to talk to you, right? And so we can't get rid of all of it. There are too many benefits. It's here to stay. The question is, how do we use it appropriately so it doesn't cause harm? I don't really have that answer. Um, I think we need people smarter than me to sit in a room and figure that out. I know this is going to be a big question, but like in your perfect world, if you had the, the magic wand to kind of implement some new changes that you think would improve social cognition and improve these isms and a lot of what's happening, what are some of the key things that you think, you know, you touched on culture before, but like, what are some of the key things you think we could really focus on to try to address these issues? I think, I think we've seen globalism have a positive impact. The more we've been able to meet each other and talk to each other and visit different places, the more likely we are to see the common humanity in each other. And I think a lot of what we're seeing now on the negative end is a, a pushback against globalism. So for instance, here in the UK, in this context, we've had the Brexit vote. That's directly a pushback against globalism, right? We don't want these strangers in our country. And so being able to sample from the breadth of humanity, I think is going to be beneficial to us all. And social media can actually facilitate that, right? The problem is the algorithms currently put us in bubbles. So they put us with people like us because they think that's what we like. But if we have the ability to have more experiences, then we can learn for ourselves. We don't have to rely on cultural information. Mm -hmm. I don't need to listen to what my friend tells me about those people or what TV says about those people. I've met a few of them and I can form my own opinion, right? And so I think the more we have 
the more ability we have to interact on a fairly level playing field. So I'm going contact hypothesis here, right? The more the playing field is level and we can interact and learn about each other, the less I think these problems will, will occur. But how do you get that to occur when we are where we are now, right? Because we're not at that place now where if we put Republicans and Democrats together, they'll kill each other. They would learn from each other, right? So we have some repairing to do first before we can do that. But I think there's huge potential in using the technology to create a better society. I just think we don't do it. Yeah. Because it's not profitable <laughs> as yeah. yet. Maybe one day it will be. <laughs> that seems like the trick, right? You want to make it profitable and then then things will change. Yeah, if we live in these this capitalist society, that's how it works, right? So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I know we're coming up on time, man. I want to respect uh, your your night. Um, but is there anything that you want to talk about or share, let people know about stuff you're working on, a study? Do you need research participants? I know you have a book, uh, Invisible Minds, right? 2017? Yeah, and I'm Invisible working Mind. on another one. Yeah, so I'm, I'm working on another one. Um, I think, if anything, the parting message would be hope. Um Everything I've talked about isn't fixed. None of these things are fixed. And we have this great big machine in our heads that's capable of lots. And we're not using it to its full capacity. So I don't think we're doomed to kill each other or to die in a burning planet. Right? I think we can we can get in front of this. We can solve this. We have the ability to, right? For instance, if you consider something like bias. In the last 20 years, we, we have learned so much about how bias works as a, a process in the brain, for instance, that there are a ton of interventions that we can come up with based on that that might be effective. But they won't fly in the societies we currently live, where the minute you leave the intervention, you're back in a place where you're bombarded with negative imagery, right? So there is hope. We have the tools. We don't have the will. And so I think we need to, to focus on the will to change. Um, because unless we do that, it's not going to happen. So there's hope, but we just need to sort of get the will to match the tools because we have the tools. Yeah, perfect. I've, what better note to end on than a message of hope? I will take that. Lasana, thanks so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.